Welcome to Baker McKenzie's Asia-Pacific Risk and Crisis Management podcast series, Managing Business Compliance Issues in the New Normal. In this series of podcasts, we will be exploring the challenges and risks encountered by businesses amidst the constantly changing legal and regulatory landscape. Our Big McKenzie team of speakers will share their insights around the various legal and compliance issues, which will be illustrated via a factual scenario. The series will include topics relating to fraud, insurance, data privacy, and adapting appropriate processes. My name is Celeste Ang, a partner in Big McKenzie, and I'm based in Singapore. I'm joined today by my fellow partners, Stephanie Magnus, also based in Singapore, and Simon Hui, who is based in Shanghai. The factual scenario around which the podcast series will revolve is as follows. An email is received by the finance department, seemingly from the general manager, stating that a $5 million payment that is due to be made today to a supplier needs to be sent to a different bank account of the supplier. The finance team sends a response to the GM informing the GM that, in accordance with company policy, a written confirmation is needed from the supplier to change the payment details and the GM and the CFO must jointly sign a form to change the details in the system. The GM forwards an email with the required client confirmation and asks for the relevant form to be sent to her. The GM says that given she's working remotely, she can't sign the form in person and instead sends the form with the signature on it. Normally, her secretary would have taken it to her to sign in person. The CFO is shown the GM's email and based on those, the CFO signs the form as well. The money is then transferred. Two days later, the supplier calls up asking about the $5 million payment as it had not received the money. The supplier denies having approved the change of bank account. The finance team contacts the GM who says she did not send any of the emails for the change in supplier payment details or the form authorizing the change. Typically, when faced with such a scenario, the first thing most companies would do is to call the bank to try stopping payments. In this episode, therefore, we will be covering issues around the communications and interactions with the bank. First, navigating the steps to take to seek to freeze the funds and recover the money and understand how best to navigate considering the concerns relevant from the perspectives of the financial institutions and also variations in approach considering the civil law and common law jurisdiction. Let's start off with Steph to get an insight you know, from an FI's perspective. Steph, on the aspect of seeking to stop the bank from remitting the monies or further disposal of the monies forward, what are the considerations which the bank would have if it received such a call? Okay, uh, thanks very much uh, for that question, Celeste. And certainly the scenario which you described is unfortunately a scenario that is more and, com- more, and more common these days. In fact, um, in Singapore and elsewhere, the number of scams involving the transfer of funds to scammers' accounts um, has increased uh, exponentially. And through the combined efforts of the bank, um, but you know, together with the police, there is an increased understanding of how some of these scams are proliferated. But um, you, you are right in the sense that the first thing that you do would typically would be to uh, speak to the bank uh, to see whether the bank um, does actually have a possibility of stopping those monies. Now, once there is suspicion 
or that there is a fraudulent transaction, it is very important to call the financial institution immediately. We have a fraud department and personnel who are fairly experienced in this area to deal with these situations. Um, certainly, the first thing that the bank will do would be to check whether the money is still with the bank, uh, whether it's been transmitted out, whether it's in the process of transmission, um, or whether it's already in another bank account which they have no control over. Um, and they will also look to investigate the veracity of the instructions and the authorizations that they initially acted on to transmit those funds. Thanks, Steph. I mean, assuming that the bank still has the funds and receives such a call, typically will the bank stop the process pending confirmation or will the bank go ahead on the basis of the authorised instructions? So, for example, you know, will the bank proactively take steps to suspend further disposal of the funds? Typically, if the bank is now aware that um, the initial instructions may have come from a fraudulent uh, uh, perspective or from a scammer and the money is still in the bank, I think the bank will proactively take steps uh, to stop the transfer from going through. Uh, the scammers here could be, you know, time is very, very uh, critical uh, because the scammers work very, very quickly. Uh, now, in Singapore, there's actually been a rise of scams resulting in these unauthorized transfers of funds uh, to scammers. And just last year, uh, on the 18th of June, uh, the Singapore Police Force initially with uh, three local banks in Singapore, and now that's been extended to other banks, have started to actually collaborate to cut down on the investigation time and the time it takes to freeze bank accounts by streamlining its investigation and prosecution processes. So previously, while uh, some of these processes to freeze a bank account uh, may take up to two weeks, uh, with this specialized unit uh, being put in place, uh, the time to freeze a suspicious bank account um, and also to retrieve uh, bank account details and statements are now just a matter of days. And because um, you know these things are very time sensitive, uh, the shortening of the time period uh, between reporting and um, investigation and freezing of the account um, has actually allowed or resulted in an increased rate of recovery not too much of about 35 percent uh, but certainly that's a better rate than uh, previously so you know i think um, one of the things to take away is that the minute you discover a fraud it is very important to contact your bank um, and we typically find that the bank uh, will do things in their means to try to uh, prevent the money from being transferred uh, when they have still have control um, over the money now, this uh, anti-scam uh, and collaboration with the police force, which I mentioned in Singapore, there's also similar setups, uh, you know, in the region and globally, um, including in Hong Kong, uh, China, uh, Taiwan, and Canada as well. Yeah, thanks, Steph. I think that's interesting. I mean, in cases that we have assisted, you know, clients, whether before or recently, what we have seen to be effective is to adopt a two-pronged approach. First obviously to alert the bank insofar as they still have the funds with them um, and secondly to concurrently approach the authorities or the police who may be persuaded to then seek a freezing order and with the freezing order you know this would typically assist the bank in withholding you know sums and you know I mean Steph would you agree that 
in line with you know what is currently sort of happening in the in the industry that would be an effective approach. Uh, yes, absolutely. So the banks are typically very cooperative um, to to freeze the accounts, and as I mentioned, I think there is very tight uh, regulation um, and collaboration with the banks and uh, the police in this uh, particular scenario. Uh, one of the other interesting things, uh, Celeste, I wanted to mention uh, was that there was a case in Singapore very similar to the case study that you've mentioned where um, there was a company that uh, had a bank account with a local bank here in Singapore and um, it was discovered that uh, there were six uh, sort of remittance uh, transfers and authorizations that were actually unauthorized uh, that were made such that money was actually remitted out from a company's bank account uh, to an overseas account. Um, and um, you know the company discovered that and notified the bank. Unfortunately, the monies had already left um, the shores of Singapore, and it was therefore going to be very difficult to recover those funds. So that particular company actually took an action against the bank, um, citing that the bank should not actually have acted on uh, fraudulent instructions, and therefore they were not acting. Um, in accordance with the duties that the bank um, had or was, uh, had owed to the company. Now, in this particular case, the court actually held for the bank. Um, they did mention that the bank, um, looking at the facts of the case, uh, were act, did act in good faith. And, and although that there were certain um, irregularities, for example, on callbacks, uh, the person was not available, um, there was no uh, putting all these irregularities together. Um, it, the court did not find that they were uh, grossly negligent and were not um, in a, acting in accordance with their duties of good faith. So, you know, it is also very important for us uh, to understand that, um, you know, the, the fraudsters or the scammers uh, may also uh, be changing their tactics all the time. Um, sometimes it is very difficult to. Uh, catch um, you know some of these uh, scams on a very timely manner, but um, you know it is important to then therefore stay abreast of um, you know what is going on um, and the sort of uh, schemes the scammers use, um, and also to take a look at your contractual arrangements uh, with the bank in terms of um, how um, the the banking documentation uh, is drafted and worded in terms of the duties that the bank has uh, towards um, companies. Yeah, so I think that's you know an interesting case you know from a bank's perspective. If there were you know orders say you know by the authorities, it would probably be easier to for the banks to act you know on those um, orders because they are sort of compelled by the orders. But where there isn't, then you know obviously the banks you know would have got to look at you know the contractual terms and the authorization. I mean, coming back to the issue around engaging the authorities, you know I should just add just to round up this point that that the process for the police to investigate and determine the rightful owner of the funds um, and finally lifting the order for the release of the funds, you know, at least in our experience, you know, can be fairly long drawn. Um, eventually, the Singapore courts, you know, which is where the police would get the order at the outset, you know, will have to be involved in that process. And, you know, certainly I think we have encountered cases where competing claims um, have to be adjudicated before the court. Um, before the order for release um, can occur. So I think on the front end, certainly, you know, getting the order may have a shorter period, but on the back end, in terms of getting the release of the funds, 
um, there could be a fairly long drawn um, period um, on that end. But I think, you know, now, now let's turn to the civil law point of view. Um, so coming to you, Simon, uh, what would be the most effective step to take if a company encounters a situation like the fact scenario we have? And, you know, are these common, say, in China? Yeah, well, thank you, uh, Celeste. Uh, uh, unfortunately, this is a very common issue in China. And in fact, some of our clients also run into these problems. And uh, in, in most of the cases, our clients are able to uh, contact the remitting bank and then the, the, the bank can use their internal communication channel called the SWIFT system uh, to notify the receiving bank, which often are found in China, of the unusual transaction so that the receiving bank will be put on notice. Most banks in China have an internal procedure to slow down movement of funds out of the bank account particularly if they are suspicious of the movement in and out of the bank, uh, of funds in their bank account. Sometimes we are called upon by our clients uh, to contact the recipient bank in China and notify them of the wire fraud. We use the primary goals for us to contact the uh, recipient bank is to put them on notice of the questionable fund transfer and at the same time obtain as much information as possible from the bank, in particularly the current status of the bank account, i.e. whether there's any still any funds left in the account. If the fund has already moved out of the account, we will ask the bank to provide information as to where the fund has moved to. All information collected from the communication with the bank is going to be very useful in terms of helping our clients to report the matter to the Chinese police once the initial stage for preventing funds from moving out of the bank account is completed. I want to uh, stress that in China, uh, the bank usually will notify the police and ask them to help to issue a freezing order to stop the money from being moved out of the account. Some of the bank actually will initiate internal procedure to slow down the account's activity once they see suspicious funds being transferred to the bank account. And based on our experience, in most of the cases where our clients have taken action promptly, they stand a very good chance to recover either the full amount or, or the substantial amount of the stolen fund. Thanks, Simon. So, Steph earlier on raises quite an interesting case um, in Singapore on a suit brought against a bank for acting on certain instructions after the monies have you know, been transferred out. Have you seen similar cases in China? Right. Uh, I think uh, our observation is that this time of claim against banks in China uh, is not very common. I think one of the reasons being that majority of the cases we have handled involving Chinese banks who are actually receiving money from overseas remitting banks. But having said that, under the PRC system, in order for an action against the bank to succeed, I think it is very necessary to prove that the bank was at fault, in that it has failed to observe the uh, bank's established internal protocol in reviewing and confirming instructions to transfer funds out of the account, or otherwise, we can prove that the bank has failed to exercise required due diligence and care when handling the instruction. Uh, in some of the cases where we found that hackers are found to have hacked into our client's uh, uh, email system and used their email to send instructions to banks to release funds, 
in this scenario, it's quite difficult to uh, bring a case against the bank involved. Yeah, so it looks like, you know, they will, you know, do some balancing or at least assessment of the bank's duty of care in handling um, the funds, which is quite similar um, to the Singapore case. So, Steph, Simon raises, you know, quite a good point about banks possibly taking more proactive steps. For example, communications between the remitting and recipient banks or placing a block. So, considering the rise of such fraudulent schemes and such schemes being more com- common, um, and, you know, as you mentioned, there are also known sort of syndicates and players in a sense, I assume that banks must be quite alive to these issues. So, other than merely reporting to report, um, do banks put in place processes to, or systems to monitor the bank accounts? And do you see, you know, there being changes in the processes being implemented in the financial industry over the years? Yes, Celeste, I think definitely. I think with the rise of uh, wire fraud and and scammers, um, you know, this is an area where um, the banks um, have actually invested a lot of time um, as well as technology. Um, You know, certainly the banks already have their internal monitoring systems in place uh, to monitor suspicious transactions um, and suspicious accounts, or um, which will then um, look at you know different frequencies, different volumes of transactions to determine whether there is a suspicious pattern. Uh, with the rise of fintech and technology applied, uh, the banks have also uh, looked at applying a lot of this technology to fraud detection um, and tracing as well. So as technology, um, you know, continues to be enhanced and used, we expect that the bank's uh, own fraud protection monitoring systems will also continue to be improved. Um, and you may have been a recipient as a as a bank customer of some of this technology, including voice recognition or uh, biometric recognition um, and and callbacks or using a, a different uh, sort of authentication mechanisms for authorizing uh, transfers. Now, all these things help the bank to uh, prevent uh, fraudulent um, cases from happening. Now, the other thing which is very important is actually education. So, the education of potential scams, uh, both from from a customer's perspective as well as a bank employee's perspective, um, is very important. And we know that the bank uh, works a lot with the police to understand the latest sort of fraudulent schemes uh, which um, you know, um, scammers may actually utilize. Uh, finally, in Singapore, as mentioned, um, like in other jurisdictions, there is an anti-scam center, which is a collaboration between the banks and the police. Um, and that close collaboration, um, I think, is, is certainly required uh, for uh, these crimes to be combated. Um, actually, there was a case which was just uh, mentioned uh, fairly recently where an um, uh, individual was um, going to transfer funds um, and this was based on uh, a scam and the individual had basically then said, okay, if you won't uh, transfer funds, then I'll go to another bank. And even though um, the, this uh, potential fraudulent scheme was not reported by any third party, uh, the banks actually informed um, each other about this scheme and also alerted the police, which resulted in the fraud um, or the crime not being committed. So I think uh, prevention um, and some of these measures or tactics to make sure that 
um, you know, fraud can be detected on a timely basis um, is something that the banks are uh, working closely to improving. Yeah, I think that's, you know, really good. You know, thanks, Steph. Simon, what about, um, you know, from your perspective, do you see similar shifts in China, for example? Thank you, Celeste. Yes, I think from the Chinese bank perspective, we do see, you know, they use uh, the modern technologies to uh, set up an internal monitoring system to monitor movements of bank accounts. Um, this uh, particularly, you know, they pay attention to any suspicious movement of money in and out of bank accounts. Uh, for those banks uh, with uh, branches in, uh, you know, wire hotspots, we see they are particularly vigilant about the wire risk. Uh, they often put bank accounts with suspicious movement under surveillance. Uh, this is, uh, you know, well demonstrated in one of the cases that we handle for a foreign bank which fought victim to a cyber fraud uh, uh, case. The Chinese bank receiving the fraudulent funds immediately reported the lo- to the local police. This is even before our client, the foreign bank, officially instructed us to contact the bank to notify the bank of the wire fraud cases. In, in, because due to the swift action uh, taken by this Chinese bank, uh, the entire amount of the funds was successfully frozen. Uh, and then, you know, so that proper uh, criminal proceeding or investigation can be commenced to investigate the matter. Thanks, Simon. I mean, it looks like, you know, it is a collaborative effort, you know, across um, different banks, different jurisdictions and different authorities as well. So I think just shifting gear here, I mean, we have sort of discussed self-help remedies and trying to recover the funds by contacting the bank and engaging with authorities. So for completeness, you know, I thought it might be useful for us to just round off today's session briefly on possible civil preemptive remedies, assuming that the monies have left the hands of the bank. So in common law jurisdictions, for example, um, depending on the level of information, you know, one has on where the monies have gone, you know, the identities of prospective fraudsters, um, and where these potential defendants are, there are certain civil proceedings or remedies which can be pursued, um, including, for example, interim injunctive orders, uh, pre-action discovery, freezing orders, search and seizure orders, which may aid in preserving the assets, or the evidence and, you know, in obtaining information to pursue action against the right defendants. So recently, you know, we have seen certainly an interesting line of cases involving injunctions against unnamed defendants or persons unknown. And this has been the tool um, that is used in multi-jurisdictional fraud cases, particularly since, you know, it is often not possible to identify each and every defendant at the outset. So in the UK, for example, this person's unknown relief has been used to seek a worldwide seizing injunction against persons unknown who may have participated in an email fraud. So the case is basically CMOC, Sales and Marketing Limited and Persons Unknown. So the availability of such a tool in other common law jurisdictions and the limits you know, would remain to be seen, but certainly you know, it is a, a possible effective tool. So Simon, I think from a civil law perspective, do you see similar preemptive remedies being used? Right. Uh, in China, it is quite challenging to enforce uh, civil preemptive remedies measure issued by an overseas court. Uh, under the current legal regime, only a limited range of co-order rendered by a foreign court would be recognized and enforced in China. However, interim remedy measures such as freezing orders, 
or injunction orders are excluded from the scope of recognized orders by the Chinese court. For cyber fraud cases, since they are mainly criminal in nature, the Chinese judiciary view is that they should be more appropriately handled by the criminal justice system instead of through civil proceedings. Therefore, in China, tracing and tracing assets in a cyber fraud case is mainly carried out by the Chinese police. Therefore, it is very critical that a victim of a cyber fraud can quickly gather the necessary information and report the matter to the police in a timely manner. This will ensure the police can respond quickly by taking the necessary measures to trace and freeze assets. Attorneys in China often play a vital role in helping clients to gather key information and file a report to the appropriate police authority in China. In this regard, court orders and other documents issued by overseas courts can be very useful if they are presented in a systematic and logical manner that can be easily understood by the authorities who may not be familiar with overseas legal procedures and documents. If rightly presented, these are good and strong evidence in support of the victim's claim, and the Chinese authorities will be more willing and ready to take up the case and launch a formal investigation in China against the fraudsters. Yeah, so I think, you know, as I said, I think it remains to be seen whether these persons unknown kind of remedy, you know, can you know, happen, you know, outside of the UK. But certainly, you know, it is an interesting uh, remedy. So um, thank you very much, Steph and Simon, you know, for sharing your insights on the issues around communications and interactions with the bank. Um, and thank you everyone for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode of our Asia-Pacific Risk and Crisis Management Podcast Series, Managing Business Compliance Issues in the New Normal. Thank you.